0: We're going to continue on uh, this morning in our series that we've been calling The Way. And remember, The Way was the way the earliest Christians identified themselves. They weren't known as Christians uh, for many years uh, after uh, the ascension of Jesus, but early on they were just called as followers of The Way. And, And that was not only The Way of Salvation... That Jesus had inaugurated, but it was also a way of living that was totally countercultural based on what, what it meant to say that Jesus had risen from the dead and that Jesus was Lord. And so uh, we're going to look and continue on in that series, Matthew chapter 18. We will begin in verse 21. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus. And asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven? And, and you have to understand how magnanimous Peter was. I think I read into Peter sometimes a bit of a pleaser. You know, he's like... It, because rabbinical teaching in the first century was that you would forgive somebody up to three times. So the first time you'd forgive him, second time you'd forgive him, third time you'd forgive him, fourth time, forget it. No forgiveness. And so Peter... Peter doubles it and then adds one to make a Jewish number seven, which is highly significant to the Jewish mind. It symbolizes completion. And I can just imagine, you know, as Jesus is talking about what happens when his disciples disagree with each other and how they should handle that, Peter asks the question, hey, how many times should we forgive each other? And he thinks seven is like the most radical suggestion ever. And Jesus, of course, just corrects him very gently. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations have it, 70 times seven times. So he takes this Jewish number of completion and says multiply it by itself. And then you begin to get an idea that there is no limit at all to the number of times you should forgive somebody. Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? And, 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 and not only that, but the 77 is actually... a a semi-obscure reference to Genesis chapter 4, and you can look that up if you're wanting brownie points from Jesus. But in Genesis 4, there's just an interesting tie to the number 77 in terms of being forgiven or needing forgiveness. And so what Jesus says to Peter, when Peter says, hey, how many times should I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? Jesus says, however many times they need it. That's what his answer is in essence. Good morning, everybody. We're in Matthew 18. Just want to We have an 11 o'clock service. We just want to invite you guys to. We're glad. No, I'm just teasing. Just teasing. Now, Jesus, of course, is never going to pass up an opportunity to not only declare 77, but but to demonstrate a bit about what that looks like when it's played out in real life. So, continuing on, Jesus says, verse 23, Therefore, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents. My NIV has bags of gold, but it's talents was the numerical value. 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, when we hear this like 2,000 years later with American ears, we we miss a couple of things that are pretty significant. First of all, we have a king who has like books, an accountant. And and the king is going through uh, and he sees that there is a servant that owes him 10,000 talents. Now, to us, that does not it kind of goes, oh, okay. But you've got to understand, this was a completely absurd amount if you would hear this with Jewish ears. Now, let's do a little math. I know we love math in Sunday mornings, so let's go for this. Now, one denarius equaled one day's pay in the first century. Okay, so if I were a day laborer and I worked for a day, I would get one denarius. One talent... Equals 6,000 denarii. 6,000 days work is worth one talent. 10,000 talents, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, is 60 million days of work. Okay, Jesus isn't going to contrast a large amount of debt versus a small amount of debt... He's going to contrast an absolutely unrepayable amount versus a repayable amount. See, I mean, if, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, the IRS says you owe them $3 billion, okay. You might as well say $4 billion. I mean, it's just so, it's so out of le- I mean, it's just, the, those numbers don't even make sense to me. So if you were Jewish and Jesus told a story about a servant who owed 10,000 talents, you'd be going, well, how does a servant even get into that much debt to begin with? Right? I mean, it's crazy. And, and back then there was a debtor's prison that you, if, if, uh, if somebody owed you a debt and they couldn't pay, not only could you confiscate them uh, their property, but you could throw them into prison uh, for as long as it took to repay the debt. And so that's the scenario Jesus is painting. So here's a king who comes across a servant who has such an extraordinary debt, there's no way the servant could pay it back. Verse 26 When the servant heard this, he fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me. The Greek here reads, Be big hearted with me he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now, is that true? No. No. It's the words of somebody who've been backed into a corner. You would have known, no, no, this is an unrepayable debt. There's no way you could repay this debt. So the promise is an empty one. The servant, verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, And let him go. So why did the king cancel the debt? Was it because of the promise to repay? Okay. Was it because of the promise to repay? No. There was no repaying this debt. It says the king took pity on him. And and then the question becomes, where does the debt go? Who eats it? The king! The king pays the price for this debt, in a manner of speaking, right? The king just insists. So what the king has to do is he has to close his accounting books and operate now in a different manner completely than what the books would demand. Because the books say, you owe me 10,000 talents, and I have every right to confiscate you and everything else as partial payment for that debt. But the king lets the guy go. Now, verse 28. When that servant, now we'll call that servant servant number one. He's the servant that had the unrepayable debt. When servant number one went out, he found one of his fellow servants. Let's call him servant number two. He found one of his fellow servants, servant number two, who owed him a hundred denarii. That's what silver coins means, denarii. How many days work is that? One hundred. Is that repayable? Absolutely. So you've got a guy that owes 60 million days worth of wages, now coming across a guy who owes three months of wages. Servant number one grabbed servant number two and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me he demanded. Servant number two fell to his knees and begged him. What? Be big hearted, be patient with me. The exact same phrase that servant number one had used. Be patient with me and I will pay it back. Now, was that a legitimate promise? Yeah, that's a repayable debt as opposed to the false promise the guy had made previously. But servant number one refused and said he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what was happening, they were outraged and went and told their master, the king, what had happened. Then the master called servant number one in and said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours. Why? Because you promised to repay it? No, because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all the owed. When would that be? Never. Never. And then Jesus adds this very warm conclusion. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Amen. Let's close in prayer and, and we'll go. I mean, what? Okay, so to make sense of this, Let's use some visual aids. Okay, so the first visual aid. The king. This is a ledger. The king has books. On these books are credits and debits. Things that the king owes to other people and things that the other people owe the king. And he comes across an entry where there's a servant that owes 10,000 talents. 60 million days of labor. And a totally ridiculous sum. But because the servant begged for mercy, the king eats the debt, closes the book, and operates now in a completely different manner, on a completely different basis than what the books would demand. He swallows the debt and lets the servant go. The whole parable turns on the idea that the king isn't the only one who has books. It turns out the servant has books too. Another smaller and less impressive, right? But he's got books too. He owes people money and people owe him. And so the servant comes across another servant that owes him 100 days of work. The wages of 100 days of work. A totally repayable sum. And the servant has exactly the same opportunity to do for him, for this guy what the king had done for him. Close the books, eat the debt, and operate on a different basis. But instead, what does the servant do? He insists on playing by the books. Now here's Jesus' point. What's the king do with people who insist on playing by the books? If it's the books you want to play by, then I will use the books with you. So when Peter says, Hey Jesus, how many times should we forgive a brother or sister who sins against the seven as if that were magnanimous? Jesus says, no, you're not even close. However many times they need forgiven is is however many times you forgive them. That many times. And then he tells a story about a king who forgives an unrepayable debt and how the servant who had the debt forgiven should then go and forgive any debts owed to him. Why? Because God's book on me is a lot bigger than my book on anybody else. The Gospel turns out to be the abandonment of the ledger system altogether. Where a king eats a debt that none of us could pay so that we could go free. But being the good people we are, we pick up our own books. And I don't know about you, not 100% of everybody has been nice to me. <laughs> and so I have lists of things people have done. People have said unfair criticisms, accusations, sk- you know, slander, gossip. I mean, whatever it is, I carry around books. And we can talk about forgiveness. See, anybody who says forgiveness is easy has never really been hurt. Because... My books matter to me. I got lists of things that go years and years back. And Jesus' teaching is not only that the gospel is the abandonment of books, but that is the ethical obligation of saying yes to the gospel means you abandon the books too. See, the, the New Testament summary of what your response is to grace is simply this. Give to other people what you've received from God. That's it. You want to summarize all the Christian life. There it is. He moved first. He loved first. He forgave first. He was generous first. And we just reenact those things in very small ways to each other. There it is. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Is it easy? Of course not. Because... I would look and think about a room this size. If you were to take the normal percentages, the statistics that apply to American population generally and apply them here, how many of us have been abused? How many of us have been betrayed, abandoned? How many of us are the products of broken homes? How many of us have deep, deep pain? And so when Jesus comes along and says, how many times should you forgive? However many times they need it. There's a cost to that way of life. Because who eats the debt when the debt's forgiven? The forgiver does. And so when we talk about forgiveness... And the imperative of passing along what we ourselves have received. We start with the book God has. And the good news is that God abandoned the ledger system, that whatever written list of accusations that could be held against me was nailed to the cross and it's no longer a basis of accusation for anybody. That's great news. But what response then looks like for his followers is that we close our books too. That's harder news. Because I'm a huge fan of mercy when it applies to me. I'm a fan of justice everywhere else. So think about how this goes, right? We're go- we'll take this ball, and this will symbolize a hurt that Graham does to me. Okay? Graham hurt me, symbolically, by throwing me that ball. Okay? Don't hurt me really, which you could. Now, let's say, and Graham would never do this, but let's say, you know, Graham says something brutal, to somebody else and it gets back to me. It's, it's about me and he, he says it and it gets back to me and it hurts. Or, or Graham's my boss and he's the reason I don't get a bonus. He takes credit for work I did. Or he cheats me out of something. Or he lies about me. However it is it happened, let this represent the pain and the hurt and the wound. Do we all have these? You bet. The amount in here would be staggering. What do I do with this? Seems to me i got four options. Option number one is to give it back. Right? He hurts me, so what do I do? I hurt him! I mean, isn't that awesome? Isn't that just... Isn't, doesn't that come easily? Right? So think of all the creative ways I can hurt him. I could confront him and call in names to his face. I could go around him and just talk about him badly to everybody else. I could give him the silent treatment. No, I only use that one for my wife. Sorry. You wouldn't get that one, Graham. I save that one for people closest to me. It's totally okay. No, but I mean, the, most, the easiest thing in the world is to hurt back, Right? Our world, we have movies that are based on nothing more than the pure joy of revenge. Remember how last week we were talking about something that looks strong but is actually weak and something that looks weak but is actually strong? Nietzsche called forgiveness a slave morality because it's the only response that oppressed people can have to their oppressors. He called it weakness. We look at the cross of Jesus and say that's the strongest thing that's ever happened on this planet. When God himself was put to death. Forgiveness looks like weakness, but it's actually strength. And for anybody who's ever had to forgive another, you know how much it takes. Because what's easy, giving it back to Graham. Now, one of my other favorite maneuvers, Graham hurts me. But I don't give it back to Graham. I give it to Bambi. Have you ever had an argument at home after a really bad day at work or at school? Have you ever found yourself get it up here, Bambi, I'm not diving. There we go. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself totally and unra- I mean, just irrationally upset at something over here? And then after you've gone nuts, you realize, oh! I was actually mad about this over here. So one option when you're hurt is to give it back to the person. The other option is to hurt somebody else. Third option, I get it and I hold on to it. I internalize it. I believe the lie that I deserve it. It I form an identity around it. I have a gaping hole that I'm always acting out of. And I don't know why all of these other things in my life are going crazy, but I sit here with this and I don't deal with it. I become, in the worst sense of the word, a victim. So you can give it back. You can spread it around. You can hold on to it. The word forgive means to send it away. It means to dismiss. It means to yield our right for justice. And forgiveness, someone once said it this way forgiveness is setting somebody free and finding out it was you. Because the person who benefits most from forgiveness is the forgiver. Because you may have to forgive somebody who's dead. You may have to forgive somebody who has no interest in being forgiven, or who won't even admit they did anything wrong. You may be asked by Jesus to forgive somebody, and there is no possibility of reconciliation between you. What do you do then? Hurt back? Hurt another? Internalize it? Or drop it? See, if we believe that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free... One of the things we labor under for far too long is bitterness and resentment that comes from being so hurt by other people and consumed then with bitterness and resentment. That the evil is done to us twice. Once when it occurred and secondly as it now bends us around itself. And so one of the hardest things followers of Jesus are asked to do is not to return evil for evil, but to return evil with good. And that starts most fundamentally with our willingness to let it go. Now, if you're like me, it's at this point that I start asking, well, what about, and you don't understand, because I mean, 80% of my ledger is forgivable. Right? I mean, it's kind of, some of these things are dumb and petty, and I, yeah, yeah, I need to forgive those people. But there are a couple of here that I'm really not interested in forgiving. I mean, I might say I am, but deep down, I'd really like to see bad things happen to them. (laughs) And don't look at me like I'm the only one, all right? Put your books away, people. A man named R.T. Kendall wrote a book called Total Forgiveness. And it was really helpful for me to understand a bit about what biblical forgiveness is and is not. Let's start with it is not. Forgiveness does not mean that you approve of what they did. No, it is precisely because it was bad that it needs forgiven. It doesn't mean that you excuse it, or you justify it, or you refuse to take the wrong seriously. It doesn't mean that you pretend Say, I always thought forgiveness meant, I just have to end up saying, Oh, it wasn't that bad. No, it is that bad. God Almighty doesn't look at our sin and say, Ah, it's not a big deal. No, it cost him his son. So the biggest thing you need to know is we don't pretend in this place. Evil is real. And much we do to ourselves, much we do to others, but there is much that have been done has been done to us. And any conversation that begins about forgiveness has to begin by saying it was wrong. It was evil. So we're not pretending when we have conversations like this. Moreover, Forgiveness doesn't mean we pardon them or remove the consequences. As all good parents know, consequences are very helpful teachers. And so there are legal consequences. Forgiveness doesn't automatically mean that you have to yield legal rights. It may mean that, but not automatically. It doesn't mean that you're automatically going to reconcile with them. Forgiveness takes one person, you. Reconciliation takes two. There are people in your life who have no interest in being reconciled or they don't even see the need. It doesn't mean that your relationship with the person goes back to the way it was. If someone has abused your children, forgiveness does not mean that you let them around your kids again. Forgiveness is yielding your right to retaliation and trusting God's justice. It doesn't mean we deny what they did, and it doesn't mean we forget what happened. My parents divorced when I was nine, and it was, I was there when my dad found out my mom was having an affair. It was awesome. And then, because I was the oldest over the next several years, each parent kept telling me why the other one was wrong and bad. So I got to learn all of these really horrid things about my parents. And if you would have met me in my teens or 20s, like a couple of weeks ago, (laughs) you would have heard me say, you would have heard me say, this wasn't a big deal. This just wasn't a big deal. Of course I forgive him. It just wasn't a big deal. It wasn't until I got married and all of this junk and all of this pain and all this anger I began to wake up to how defining that event was and is to me. And people have suffered worse in here. It's just mine. Does it's not bigger or anything else? It's just I'd thought I'd forgiven them, but I realized I hadn't because I hadn't ever fully felt the weight of pain. And grief. See, forgiveness starts when we acknowledge how big, how hard, and how hurtful it was. We don't pretend or sweep it under the rug. And it doesn't mean we forget. Amnesia is not God's response to evil, it should not be ours either. He does dismiss our sins as far as the East is from the West and remembers them no more, but that means that He does not hold them against us. It's not like God's up there pretending that I'm perfect right now. No, He sees me exactly as I am, but in Christ, He declares me to be what I will be in the future, now pressed forward. And so, brothers and sisters, what does forgiveness mean then? Well, it's based entirely on how God's treated us. Is this something that's easy? No. Nope. Do we want to do it? Yep. I'm glad two of us are having a conversation up here. It's fantastic. <laughs> Forgiveness is based entirely on what God's done. Number two, it's, based, it's being aware of what someone has done and still forgiving them. Number three, it's refusing to punish them. Even though that's the easiest thing in the world. This is the hardest one for me. It's yielding my right to get even. Primarily, it's an inner condition, meaning it's about you forgiving them, not them receiving or even acknowledging forgiveness. It's the absence of bitterness. And I know this sounds weird, but sometimes it means forgiving God or us. And I know that sounds all odd, but the idea for some of us, you've been through something so traumatic that you look at God and go, well, God, why didn't you stop this? Why didn't you stop this? Why didn't you stop this? And we don't want to lean away from that question. He could have. He didn't. Why? And for some of us, somebody even today just came up and said, I don't have any problem forgiving other people. I just can't forgive myself. The point, though, is that forgiveness is not an emotion. If we waited till it felt right, we wouldn't do it. It's an act of the will and cooperation with the grace of God and His Holy Spirit to do to others what God has done to us. Literally, to forgive means I look at what they owe I look at how much it cost and how much it hurt and I close the books and abandon the ledger keeping system altogether. And the only way I can do that with other people is to what? To reflect on how God has done that to me. And I know that sounds easy or it sounds trite, but it isn't meant to be. And so Jesus says to Peter, how often should you forgive a brother or sister? As many times as they need it. But to people who carry our own books around, that sounds too big, too crazy. Jesus says, well, if you insist on playing by the books, God has books too. And so the gospel is the abandoning of the book system altogether. Not just how God looks at us, but then how we treat each other now I would imagine there are a few of us here who have books enough to be able to think of specific people that have hurt us when people say you know the church hurt me churches don't hurt people they're people hurt people <laughs> so the church if the church has hurt you it was somebody in it that hurt you Maybe the person that you need to forgive is sitting right next to you. Because isn't it true that the longer you're married, the more opportunity you have just to build resentment and disappointment and walls? And you come to an uneasy truce where you just kind of dance around each other's hurt. Maybe the person that needs forgiving is across the pew. I know this will shock some of you, but church people aren't perfect And they hurt each other, even in church. So we thought this morning, before we took the Lord's Supper, it would be most fitting if we did some bookkeeping ourselves. Because Jesus was really clear about this, wasn't he? He said, if you're at the altar, and are bringing a gift, and remember that someone has something against you, just leave your gift there. Go be reconciled. Now, that doesn't mean... The possibility exists for reconciliation in all cases. But it does mean that loving God without loving others turns out to be two sides of the same coin. So what we did is we, we left the back of our weekly blank on purpose. So I invite you to take that out and fold it in half. This is group participation time. There should be pencils near you in your pews or if you need some, some of our ushers and greeters will hand out. Now, what I need you to do is I need you to look at me. I need you to repeat after me. Repeat this. I will not look at my neighbor's paper. Okay? That's the solemn oath we are now promising each other. Alright? So what we want to do is we want to practice. Now some of you aren't going to do this and you're just going to look at me this whole time. And I want you to know that's fine. Jesus died for you. He loves you. I don't. And and uh, in my mind, I'm, I want to write denial on your sheet. Now, one, I'm just teasing. One, of, one side of this is going to be the people that that are in our lives that God would ask us to forgive. But I want to start with the other side, which is just a blank sheet of paper, but I want to consider for just a moment, if God were to still have books on us, what those books would include. What, what have we been forgiven for exactly? And so, I don't know, you could just put down pride. This is just, this is Dan Crane's list. This isn't mine. If you don't know who that is, he's one of the nicest people you would ever meet in the history of the planet. You could just put down, what has what God forgiven us for? What has He forgiven you for? So you could list pride. You could list selfish ambition. The desire to have a great name myself. You could list only being interested in people insofar as they're useful to you. You could list racism and prejudice. You could list judgmentalism or self righteousness. You could list cheating or stealing, cheating on your income taxes, lying about your accomplishments. You could write down envy and jealousy, comparison. Being ungrateful. You'd write down sexual sin in thought, in word, in deed. You'd write down hypocrisy, idolatry, giving worship that belongs to God to other things that are much lesser. I mean, the room gets a little quiet. The only way I know to begin to actually forgive another person is to be reminded of the books that the king has on me. Every now and again, even followers of Jesus need to be reminded of what grace is and looks like. So then you flip the page over and you can list who are the people that need your forgiveness. They might not even be alive or they may not know they need it. But you can abbreviate. You don't have to do this, of course. But the idea is this, that you would walk out of here lighter and freer than when you walked in. Far too many of us labor under the crushing burden of resentment and bitterness because we refuse to extend to another what we ourselves have received. How do you do that? At some point, you look at this list and you say to God Almighty, God, I forgive them. I name them before you. I pray your blessing over them. I pray for courage and grace to yield my right to justice. So what we wanted to do this morning is just make time for this. Whether you're still writing, not writing, never going to write. I would imagine all of us could spend a bit of time in reflection and praying. So we're going to take about five minutes. We're just going to be quiet, listen to a piece of music. But all of that is designed to create an environment where we would pray where we would name those people and name those issues and bring them before God, not just one time, but again and again and again, and pray for the courage and grace to release our right to get even. And so, Lord, we pray that in these moments, Your Holy Spirit would be thick in this place to reveal our own hearts that you might bring us to the place, Lord, where we surrender to your spirit and just utter those powerful words, I forgive them. I forgive him. I forgive her. And so God, do a work that only you can do, please.